Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Tell me what happened while I was out getting my fancy napkins. Tell me everything. Ah, tell me later. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Hilary Busis. The Max series and Just Like That is over, but we have a special bonus episode for you. Michael Patrick King is the executive producer and was there from the beginning with the original Sex and the City series. And with And Just Like That getting renewed for a third season, there's a lot to talk about. Enjoy the conversation. This is such an honor. Wow. Thank you for coming on Still Watching, Michael Patrick King. How are you? I'm really good. I've been listening to your Still Watching, and I've, I, I'm in the post-finale glow, I have to say. Okay, I want to know, know all your thoughts. <laughs> this is going to be really exciting. I want to know all your thoughts, but let's talk about the post-finale glow. I can't believe it's only been a week. It's so crazy. Congrats on the renewal for season three. How does it feel? It all feels very exciting because it's unbelievable that we have a 25-year brand that has a new collab, Sex and the City collabing within just like that, and that there's this new energy around it and that it's alive. That's what I think is most exciting about it, is that it's very alive, it's very something to talk about. And that's really when you're doing something, you want people to discuss it, you want it to have people loving it and people having problems with it, but it's a dialogue, which I haven't seen in a while. It, it's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, on that note, I feel like every Thursday, my Twitter feed, and yes, I'm still on Twitter, <laughs> for better or for worse, was completely- you're, you're on Twitter. You're actually the first one back. You're bringing it back <laughs> by being Bring it on back. Chris. No X. It's, we're back. We're back to Twitter. We're circling back. Yeah. But I have to say, the, my entire feed was just completely- 
filled with, and just like that, comments, jokes, memes. It really sort of was the water cooler show of the summer in a way that we don't really see that much in the streaming age anymore. No, we don't. Were you I sort mean, of plugged it, into that? I am. I mean, look, when we did Sex in the City, there was actually water coolers. Something came on <laughs> on a Sunday and people talked about it at the water cooler <laughs> till the next week. And when mm-hmm. the streaming happened, the streaming boom, and it became 5,000 shows and people were eating it like junk food and on mm-hmm. to the next, it was hard for writers because you want people to have a moment to think about what they experienced. So the fact that there was a conversation in the current day about something that we fictionally created that people have major feelings about, it's fiction and people are really owning their characters and where they want them to be. And look, the worst thing that can happen is disengagement. That's the worst thing that can happen in pop culture. Oh, totally. And I feel people are very engaged. We were very engaged. It was a really engaging season. I have to say, I'll give you a little shout out. You guys were very prescient. I would listen and think, well, wait till next week. You would sort of identify your problem the week before I wanted to discuss it. So as far as I'm concerned, there was a biorhythm that was happening between what we were trying to do from episode one to 11 and taking that audience on a roller coaster of satisfaction, dissatisfaction. I want it now. I don't want to wait another minute. It's a very demanding populace now. Uh, thank you for the shout out. That really means a lot. And it shows that we were really, we were really wrestling and we really got what I think the writers and the show was putting down this season, especially from growing from season one to season two. It became very interactive. I would see people take something I wrote and then write five jokes around it. <laughs> you guys in particular were having all sorts of side conversations that were delightful right down to the the horror of Gramercy Park. Is that real? What's up with that fireplace? I don't believe that exists. Does it exist? How much money does she have? I mean, everything that was in conversation was also in the writing room. So I wasn't really thrown. I just thought it was, I had kind of a smile on my face when I would listen. And there were times I jumped off. Trust me. I was like, not strong enough today. That's totally fair. And that is, it's it's brave of you to even to, to engage in any way. It's a pulse. I have to feel the pulse. And if people are Mm -hmm. actually engaging, and I thought really the reason I was listening, because I thought it was so generous of Vanity Fair to spend so much time on our show. And that was kind of, and you guys were all very smart and bitchy. (laughs) We are definitely smart and bitchy. I will speak for Richard and Hillary. (laughs) Smart and bitchy and funny. And so I thought, yeah, I, I'll listen to a couple because it's it was fun and constructive. Mm-hmm. I say thank you on behalf of Richard and Hillary, who are not here right now. Chickens, cowards. They were too afraid, but I, I'm not afraid. Um, I do want to talk about the season finale, obviously, because we just sort of had that episode. And I did feel, I think we all felt, we were sort of unsure whether or not this was going to be the end of, and just like that, and then Sex and the City sort of at, in total. It felt like the final episode worked as a great launching pad for more seasons, if there were to be more seasons, but it also felt like things were wrapped up in a way that if we were saying goodbye to Carrie and Miranda and Charlotte and everyone, it would have been okay. Was that like a line that you were trying to walk? I think the, first of all, let me start by saying at the beginning of season two, I didn't know if there was going to be a season three. So Mm -hmm. what I always try to do, if you're lucky enough to do a series, and I've been lucky enough to have a couple, but with Sex and the City and Just Like That in particular, I ended every season as though it was the end of a movement of some storytelling. 
So I always wanted to have some sort of a final moment. So one of the first things I started with was Seema and Carrie on the beach. I knew that that was the end and I knew they were looking out at the horizon and I just knew that that's where I was ending. And then you start to backtrack everything to certain feelings. But no, we didn't know that it was the end or the beginning of the next season. So I wanted the audience to feel satisfied with some, even some confused feelings were satisfying. What Carrie and Aiden's deal actually is, creates a conversation that either way you feel, okay, great. And if you're somebody who wants Carrie to be alone, then you're good, like, she'll be alone. And if you're somebody who wants her to be with Aiden, you can go, she'll be with Aiden. So it, it was kind of a happy, unhappy ending as far as I was concerned. What ending do you, what do you think happened? Is she alone or is she with Aiden? I have to say that I don't think in terms of future that much until it's actually time to roll it all out. Because I think a season is like you get in a car and you know where you're going and there's a lot of side trips on the way. But what I did say that I did write in that last scene she says, I might get some time off from good behavior. And basically what that shows me is that Carrie is already chipping away at the deal mm-hmm. <laughs> that she may or may not have made. In her mind, she's already not believing or believing it. So that's the only thing when she says, I may get some time off from good behavior. It's the only place I feel where there's a little air that comes in that you go, oh, maybe or maybe not. But that's Carrie. There's another character involved. (laughs) So I don't know what he's thinking. I will say I do. I loved ending with Carrie and Seema on the beach. I mean, you did dangle a Hamptons trip that we never Oh, my God. You three have never (laughs) been more upset than the Hamptons. We were pretty upset. We were pretty upset. I mean, what did you think was going to (laughs) happen? Carrie and Seema in, like, slingbacks throwing drinks in people's faces? What what did you— Basically, yeah. What did you—I mean, I love that you attached the Hamptons because guess what? So did Seema. So when it was taken away, it meant something to her and you. That was one of the best scenes, I think, of the whole entire season and even the series. And I do think the arc, obviously, the show was about Carrie and Aiden sort of falling back in love, but really sort of a deeper, even more complicated relationship was Carrie and Seema and navigating their new friendship now that Aiden has come, come back to the picture. I loved that scene. What? There's no way to say this without seeming petty or pathetic. Well, you're neither petty nor pathetic. Just say it. From everything I've heard, it sounds to me that you've had these two great loves, and I've had none. No, please, don't say I will, because I might not, and I can live with that. But I can't do this summer. That's not true. I I could, but I don't want to. I don't want to spend a fortune having this feeling. I love that scene. I have to say it's one of my favorite scenes. And I think it's one of the most, if anything can be important in fiction, it's one of the most important scenes because Seema owns the single girl and the single woman. And the series has always tried to say, I remember that people are alone still. And it's not by any fault of their own that they haven't found the love of their life and they can't be more fabulous than that. And there's a reason Seema is so fabulous and hasn't found the love of their life because there's a lot of people that have yet to find someone that they think is their person. And so that's a very rigorous journey for a lot of people to be the single one, even as you get older, 
and that line she says when she's saying about the Hamptons in the first place, I can't spend any more summers in a, in a my friend's kid's bedroom with a surfboard. <laughs> yeah. It's sad and great. And what I love about that scene is that once again, Seema's present and accounted for, and she says to Carrie, I can do it, but I don't want to. That's such an important distinction. And then having them have this beautiful beach moment with the cosmos in Greece, yeah. it felt like a really fitting ending for the season. And thank goodness, not the series, but it did, it felt satisfying. It's It lifts up. I mean, when you start the series killing someone, yeah. that's a very down moment. And And to end the second season with a lift and a a, literally a blue sky and a horizon is a subliminal way of saying, you know, bad things happen and people come through them. And it's an empty skyline at the end. It's just sky. And all the possibilities. It's so, it's yeah. all laying out in front of them. I do want to say too, back to the season finale, that 74 seconds of Samantha Jones is also satisfying. Good. Even that amount of time, obviously, you know, we'd love to see more of her. I think, I think a lot of people would, but conceiving that, can you talk to me about how once you, you know, got Kim Cattrall back in the fold for this scene, how you thought to use her in the best way? Because it was not exactly what I expected to happen. I thought maybe she'd waltz in through the door and sit down at the Last Supper. Yeah. Well, first of all, not expecting what you were expecting is great. And I didn't want you to know about it at all. I wanted all of a sudden to carry, look at her phone and you're watching and you see the word Samantha and you're like, wait, are they not, they're not really, they're, uh, uh. so that's why it's at the top of the show because I never meant it to be the final button. And as you said, it's very brief, but Samantha's a potent perfume. You just need a little of it and it fills the space. And Kim is very strong as Samantha. And the idea of how it became a phone call is because I've always thought in my Sex in the City multiverse that, and just like that, that they're all texting and calling. There's tons of people I don't tell other people I see. So I wanted it to be casual and exalted. I wanted it to be like, oh, there she is, but it's casual. And then she says this heroic friend thing of flying for one night, you know, and then because of the circumstances that we knew it had to be very limited and had to be a phone call because of time and schedules and, and desires that I just thought, okay, she couldn't get there because of the fog. And she gets to do one thing, which is such a small piece is Annabelle Bronstein. And that's the one that came into my mind. I was like, if you know this show, this is this is ground zero, Samantha. Yeah. It's fabulous. It's ridiculous. It's refusing to back down to a lie. So I wanted to touch one moment and say, remember, it's she's still Samantha from Sex in the City, even though she's on and just like that. And that's why we fueled in the Sex and the City theme under it. That light, it was so great. And when you knew it, the Annabelle Bronson, again, it's a deep cut, but it's- Oh, it's deep. A real fan knows exactly. It's a deep cut. Real fans. A real fans know exactly who that is and love that episode. And it was, it really did sort of, uh, you know, round out the season. And it felt like a really lovely and appropriately casual moment for two characters who still have a relationship. And you know, there's, there's something about Carrie and Samantha. They're spectacular together. They really are. Oh, speaking of a couple that might not be spectacular together, we sort of saw the dissolution of Che and Miranda in a real way. 
I've got to say, this season with uh, with Che and Sarah Ramirez and their character, we really saw different sides of Che. They really sort of became fleshed out in some positive and negative ways, um, in some ways that yeah. were, you know, maybe a little bit villainous or anti-heroic, if you will. Yeah. Um, so can yeah. you talk a little bit about Che's arc and the ending of Miranda and Che? Because I thought it was fascinating. I think the trick with season one of it, just like that, was the math equation of you've known Miranda 20 years and you've known Naya 20 minutes. You've known yeah. Carrie 20 years. You've known Seema 20 minutes. So the volume of investment was so stacked against the new characters just because who are they? <laughs> Why are they talking to the people that I know? I don't know them. Yeah. So when you bring in a character like Che, who was by design was supposed to be cocky. And uh, I keep saying people are like, I don't like Che. I go, you don't like standups. That's it. That is the thing, that they are really a stand-up. They draw from their own life. Any person who stands on stage and says, I'm the art, is going to be off-putting in <laughs> real life. And, you know, they have to be dynamic. They have to be sexual because that was what we wanted to do with Miranda was awaken that part of herself by this, mm -hmm. you know, this giant Niagara Falls of being pulled to this darker um, personality for what she's used to. I mean, put Che against Steve and it's like dark versus light, you know? Completely. It's, yeah. it's in theory on the surface. And that's what was troubling and exciting about the first season is people made a snap judgment about Che based on their cockiness, their arrogance, and I think, quite frankly, their sexuality. And I think it was all fine until Che fingered Miranda in the kitchen while Carrie was peeing in the Snapple bottle. <laughs> that was sort of an iconic moment. That was de deeply iconic. Chris, Chris, <laughs> I think that shock, first of all, what I love about it is you've never seen that anywhere. That combo plate, you've never seen anywhere. Not since either. <laughs> in my, my overview of overviews, as I look at it, I think that freaked the audience out so much that they went into some sort of seatbelt mode with the first season. Like, what's going to happen next if that happened? And they were terrified. <laughs> and Che was great the first couple of episodes. And then once the finger happened and the marriage split, Che became a villain. And I also think... What's interesting about Che is whenever a character is new, not seen before, it's like, what? No. Yeah, people reject things that they don't either know or understand or haven't seen. Um, and so this season, I wanted to come back. And one of my, my battle cries for this season was get them to see more of Che, write more sides, because you're seeing more. So you had a whole evolutionary chart of Che from insecure in LA to cocky again, buying, you know, uh, oh, you, you guys with the Hudson Yards shame. You guys with the, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It works, it did, it really works, but it is very specific. It, 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 and it really made me laugh. It really made me laugh because I made sure it was Hudson Yards because of what that represented, which is new money, garbage, no soul. And you were all like, of course. Anyway, so the Hudson Yards movement, then the failure of the pilot, but from inside the house, the other non-binary person seeing it saying, it's not true. 
Yeah, that was really meta and really, really interesting and clear that the writers and you're in conversation with what's happening in the world. And it's not about picking sides, but it's just a deep in that moment. And Sarah, they did a wonderful, wonderful, yeah. heartbreaking they're, job. They're an amazing story. actor and can do anything that I asked of them. And they, we liked it. And when I talked to Sada about the beginning of Jay this season, the only conversation, the first thing I said was, Che fails. And like, yeah, we got to deconstruct Che. We got to go underneath. Mm. And I loved it. And I knew they could do it. And then we gave them a kitten. So yeah. now it's like <laughs> soft, cuddly Che. And we could hear people screaming, oh, now we're supposed to like Che because there's a kitten. It's like, this word, it does help. I did like that kitten. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and it all comes from the writing room. Samantha Irby, who is the most brilliantly acid, sweet, writer in the world. She has everything. Her job before she was a writer and a New York Times bestselling novelist, she worked in a pet tech place for 10 years. So we felt we could own that. It wasn't just a hang in their baby cat poster moment for us. It was <laughs> yeah. It was based on that. And then Che couldn't have been. Then all of a sudden people started coming around. I like Che with Carrie. Oh, I like mm. Che with Carrie. Right. Mm. And then, of course, our final volley, back to stand-up. And that's the red meat. We did that table read and that confrontation between them wasn't in the show. And I went, oh. it's, it's too vanilla. You can't do this. You have to really throw some red meat into the arena. I want them to have a fight. So they did. And then they had sort of a zen, half an inch above reality zen thought at the end about the, the, the train wreck. They were a bad train wreck. Wow, I can't believe that that the not funny Miranda screaming not funny at Che wasn't in the table read oh my gosh that was such a visceral moment because I feel obviously Miranda has sort of changed there was some talk of that Miranda might not be as recognizable to the Miranda that we knew although I do feel that by the end of the season we get back to sort of a version of Miranda that is so recognizable with her you know you know yeah. killing it at work at the human rights campaign and and Chris by design by design. It was all important. by design. We hit Miranda with a tsunami and then we put her back on her feet. And that was fun because people were really furious that Miranda seemed lost or victim-y or she's not the Miranda we know. And now maybe she's a stronger Miranda because she's come into a new part of herself. And it was all about that BBC for us. I mean, her sitting there saying, this is Miranda Hobbs. For the BBC. I and mean, looking at her tattoo. And looking at her who tattoo. Is, to I remember loved it. who she didn't want to be ever forget about. And then we took care of Steve because we love them. Still watching from Vanity Fair. We'll be back in just a moment with more from executive producer Michael Patrick King. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's so easy to just get sort of myopic and think just from like Carrie's perspective, because, you know, she's sort of the protagonist and how everybody revolves around her. But these characters have relationships, you know, beyond her in terms of like Aiden and Steve. And and Miranda and Charlotte, I had so much fun with the Brady and Lily, Miranda, Charlotte of it all was such a fun storyline. I mean, the difficult, challenging thing, and you guys talked about it a lot. I would say that was your go-to complaint. Not enough, Naya, this wasn't followed through. They did, they dropped the ball there. When you're doing a we're trying to do this thing, which has three incredibly familiar characters, four other principal characters that you just met. That's seven characters. And it's just an aggressive storytelling. And it's in terms of its volume, not in terms of its content, but just the amount of weaving this tapestry together that I wish there was more time for everybody. I wish there was. And it's just, there's only so much water of a glass can hold in one sitting. So, and you know, and Naya was uh, Karen Pittman unavailable. She's busy. She was the morning show was also I that did and the, there are external forces, right? That that and also, oh, many external forces. Karen Pittman can do anything, and she lights up a so screen good. at any moment. And the reality is, towards the end, I kept hearing you guys say, "Well, there she is in her apartment again." That's all due to scheduling. Karen would only have limited time, two days, and that just starts to become like, okay, how can we do this? Okay, she has the souffle, because that'll be a story that means something, but it's self-contained. But even in the souffle story, what was important to us was the writing in the room, where it's like, but who's Naya's other friends? Where are her Black Furrow friends? Where are her Charlotte and Miranda? So we kept just pushing a little bit, a little bit around the edges to give these characters more and more dimension. And even with the seven, and then we have like more Anthony and Giuseppe, which was such a fun. I know it's insane. It's insane. A little insane, but in the best sort of, in the best sort of way. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? And also Anthony never having bottomed, I'll say it. That was, yeah, yeah, you did say it and it was shocking. And and quite (laughs) frankly, you should be canceled for having said that. (laughs) (laughs) Cancel me, please. Michael Patrick King, you can definitely cancel me. So, so much to talk about right now. First of all, (laughs) um, The whole movement forward is to deepen everybody a little bit, not losing their sense of humor, but to show another dimension of these characters. When I lost Willie as a character, see, I confused him when I lost Stanford as a character because Willie passed, then it was Anthony and Anthony had had to have a life. So Mario, I've known for a million years since we were both stand-ups, and I knew that he has a dimension. There's nothing to me better than the tears of a clown. <laughs> you know what I mean? The idea of like the the really, the, the pistol suddenly being porous and emotional. So we were like, okay, what can we do that's so sex in the city, which is a poet with a big dick, with an enormous <laughs> dick. An enormous and then we got dick. Sebastiano Pigazzi to play it, which was insane because he's like a well-hung Disney prince. He's like, <laughs> he's... A weirdly genuine actor. And then the comedy of us doing his package and the prince and the package together. You heard the princess and the pea. This is the prince and the package. <laughs> back. Like, you know, I like that. Let's do that revival. <laughs> and I thought it was fun. Now, 
as in all sexual talk on Sex in the City through and just like that, we try to talk about stuff that maybe people haven't talked about. And Chris, God love you, but there are gay men who have not been penetrated. I uh, God true. love your younger generation, as as they as they say in the show, <laughs> you kids today with your versatility. But that little pistol, Anthony, is so controlling and so emphatic and so insecure, I think, which is what we eventually found out, that he would have to be the top. I would have to be the top. I'm the top. I don't think he's elegant. I think he's a pushy little bulldog who, in his mind, had to be the dominant one. And I think that translated to his... Like he's dominant in every fucking scene he's, he's in. He's mouthy, he's brash, he's bitchy. He's, he's like, dominant. Let's just say that. And whether there's an inner bottom inside of him, which we sort <laughs> of did explore at the end. Yes, you do. I do think in a very limited point of view, which was the story, he saw himself in a very limited way. I do this. I'm this person. And then we bring in this incredibly open, open emotionally, open physically, younger, younger, younger man. And it challenged that. It's all about, you bring new characters in to challenge the ideals of the characters you know. But I will say that you guys did something very nice, which was you sort of understood the older man, younger guy. You wanted him to have something. Yeah, we were and experienced something. It was because we, you know, we wanted Anthony to have these experiences and not waste Giuseppe and his talent. <laughs> you only <laughs> went the low road when you had when you Chelsea'd him out in some <laughs> bottom scenario that you thought must have happened. And that that was really the most fun and the most frustrating thing about the whole reaction to the show. Please tell it's me about so it. So fueled by people's own versions of these characters everything a hundred percent it really it is so it's so personal and you'd be having a conversation with somebody who you know this summer you know i was in fire island and like one of my friends was like i'm a carrie and i was like you're not a carrie you're a charlotte and then it just it's that personal we're still having these conversations 25 years later and they're being refueled by just like that and it's a personal thing and it reveals something about who you are as a person how you respond to these different you know right and 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 how you're challenged by their changes. Mm-hmm. Like the Miranda marriage falling apart was so personal that oh. people would like scream, that's not my Miranda. And I like, well, it's my Miranda and I've been writing her. I wrote Steve and I wrote Miranda. And I understand that you want her to be happy eating desserts on a couch. I love to eat desserts on a couch watching TV. But if it's not making you happy, then you it's the healthiest thing is to change. That's what we've been trying to do all along. And I want to say one other thing about you guys and your tribunal. Yes, I'm calling it a tribunal. (laughs) Tribunal. Your Thursday tribunal. The abortion thought. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, The not mentioning abortion was not out of timidness or fear. It was, we believed in the writing room, since we're actually believing these people exist, that Herbert, who as you saw in the last episode, said God has other plans for us, that Herbert has a deep faith, lightly or deep, I'm not sure, but he's raised in the church thought. And so for him and her, 
to say, uh, for him to say, should we have the other conversation, was delicate because I don't believe Herbert wants to say it, but he's offering her the option, which was the story. And the line that was more important than saying, do you want an abortion to us, was her saying, I'm still grateful I live in a place where that's an option. That's the line that needed to be screamed because we didn't have to say the word abortion because you heard it. Yeah, we understood. No, we definitely, we definitely understood. And it just- If it had been Miranda, abortion, abortion, abortion. And that's the thing where it's when you were still getting to know these characters and they all would handle this in a different way. And again, it definitely, you know, Sex in the City, 25 years ago, it wasn't timid. We were saying abortion, abortion. Samantha had multiple abortions. Carrie had one. The star had one. But- there are different context things in terms of, you know, this is, you know, uh, a wealthy black couple and maybe there's spirituality involved. There are different things that would make Lisa Todd Wexley and Herbert's dealing with that situation different than anybody else's. It was interesting, though, in terms of, I guess, why did you put that storyline in at the end? Just because it felt like that could be such a big thing that could use more space, but it did sort of come in sort of in the last couple of episodes. Everything happens. There's discussion. First of all, the, the use of the word abortion or not use of the word abortion comes up in the writing room all the time. Nothing is casual. Everything is deliberate. And there's, there's six different, seven different people in that writing room. And some of them, a lot of them are women and a lot of them are of color and they all have different ways of seeing the world. And we try to figure out like what rings most true for these new characters or these characters we're growing. But mm -hmm. the everything is in the writing room. And the fact that we wanted her to lose the baby because this is fiction. It's fiction. And so that's a turn on a roller coaster. People get excited. It's the Hamptons. People get excited. They're going to get to see her in color block baby clothes. And then sometimes you take things away. And so you can feel the loss. And as far as I'm concerned, the idea of seeing Nicole Ari Parker walk around, you know, in a color block baby thing and trying to do the PBS job and handling her with nursing and stuff. I, I, I've, we've done all that. We did it yeah. with Miranda. I did it when I was on Murphy Brown. I've done the, the, the breast pump joke from here till next year. I don't need to do it. What I hadn't seen was the flurry of, did I, did I wish the baby away? I had never seen that. The guilt. And that she gave away the guilt. And the, and then the the really the 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 miscarriage was there for the two of them to become even closer in Carrie's bathroom, sitting on that tub, which yeah. when I directed that episode, but when I was watching Nicole and she sat down on that tub, I I was so blown away. And then he sits down next to her, that big man sitting on that low tub and opening his jacket. I just thought it was so beautiful. And since it's fiction, and there's no real life or death in the show, except for when an actor dies, it's fun to touch the wound of how sad people feel for people or how happy they are when they get over it. So to me also, we all wanted uh, LTW to have a strong career. She already has three kids. She already has three kids. And we've seen Can a Woman Have It All? And we've seen that, we've seen that, and you've done that with LTW. So many characters, I will, this is 
funny to me. You know, uh, Miranda breaks up with Che and Steve. You know, two relationships end. Carrie, Aiden, sort of walks out of her life. And then, you know, LTW has the miscarriage and Charlotte buys an iPhone. That was sort yeah. of her That was sort of yes. her storyline in the last episode. But I love it. It's so, no, wait, Chris. It's so funny. It's just so this, great. The storyline isn't that Charlotte buys her a story. Wait, Char- and then Harry buys the iPhone for her. Harry buys the iPhone for Charlotte. Sorry, thank you. As I, a way you of be saying, be you. But yes, well, listen, have you ever tried to set up an iPhone to face touch? It's it's traumatic. Absolutely terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Yeah. And it's so great just because, and Kristen Davis is so funny. She really yeah. came alive this season in a, in a way. Yeah. I mean, she's always been phenomenal, but like really was hilarious the whole season. And dealing with, again, really important uh, like stuff in, you know, getting back into the art gallery world and getting Harry to jizz again, thank God. You know, but in a really <laughs> funny way that added a, a levity that was so nice. Yeah, it's all about balance. And if there's a miscarriage, then it's going to be, I got a new iPhone. I mean, yeah. we, you know, I mean, there's always <laughs> going to be, each of these characters has a different thread depending on where they are. But, uh, you know, Charlotte this year was really responded to. I think she really surprised people. And I think they really got into her declaration of dependence interdependence to went to Harry. I think a lot of mothers responded to her and and I, we're all thrilled that that Miranda and she are back at work. It's where they belong and it really and it's great and it, there's so many funny scenarios that come from having them in the workplace and having them try to have it all at, you know, the tender age of, you know, 57 or their late 50s. It's something that we don't, we haven't really seen. And that, I know you just said before that you don't really think about the future too much. And I know there's a writer's strike, so you probably haven't gotten. I haven't talked to anybody, no. But do you have sort of ideas or do you have sort of an inkling of where these characters might go in season three or how their lives might change and The unique thing about me and this brand is that every time it goes away, if I just knock on the door, (laughs) they're right there again. I mean, it happened with the series, Sex and the City, then it happened with the movie, then it happened again with this. It's just, they're very alive. And I think that what we have set up for a season three is new horizons for everybody and some complications. And I'm talking in very, very macro, just story ideas. Just there's just, there's enough complication that creates drama and there's enough aspiration that creates thrills so far. So I have no idea yet. I haven't knocked on the door and asked them what they want to do. You think everybody will come back? I mean, I guess you haven't knocked on the door yet, so you don't know. I don't know. It's just spending time with these women. And I think we said this when Rodika came on, uh, the podcast. We would watch Carrie read the phone book. We just like spending time. Chris, I say this with love. You would not. <laughs> you would <laughs> be that's... like, why is Carrie reading the phone book? Doesn't she have something better to do? Okay, <laughs> she's reading the phone book, but she looks fabulous. You, you would, you say you would watch it, Chris, but it's not true. You okay, would say my fair. Carrie needs to do something more with her day than read the phone book. Those actors are phenomenal. And I love that people feel that it's alive again and that it's their show more than the first season. And uh, I love that Vanity Fair considers it something to talk about, something to, to have a problem with. 
I mean, it's thrilling. It's not exactly just invisible. And I think that's the hardest thing about people work really hard on a lot of different television shows, a lot of writers and a lot of actors kill themselves. And people are like, you drive around, you see fourth season finale of blank. And you're like, what? I never even saw one episode. How can it be four seasons? It's rough, but this is, this is a... And next year, Chris, next mm-hmm. year when Carrie reads a phone book, consider <laughs> that a personal shout out to you. <laughs> You and Regina, sign that. Uh, you and the editor can say that's our storyline, and we have to love it. That's right. We've been asking. We actually had a whole uh, TikTok video asking who is the worst man on Sex and the City, including and just like that. Who do you think is the worst of the of the paramours or the friends or the lovers in terms of men? Who do you think? And I know it's all very personal for you. I would say that of all of them. The one who screamed in Charlotte's face, you fucking bitch, you fucking whore, every time he came. Wow, was, we forgot was, about him. Was rough. That was she, crazy. That was like having a wolf scream at a little lamb. So it's like he every time, every time he yelled at her, he came, he would yell something filthy accusatory at her. And Kristen, that's I think where Kristen began the patented Charlotte double blink. Blink, blink, <laughs> like how do yes. you take that in? Blink, blink. But that was a that was just male fucked up aggression. Gosh, that was set. That's such a good deep cut because most people have said burger. Well, burger, burger was, and I'll tell you something about burger. Here's the thing that people don't know about burger: of all the love interests in the writing room of Sex and the City, which consisted of seven women and myself at the time of Burger's birth. The character that most of them related to as a boy in the world was Burger. He was the lady writer's nemesis. They all had a Burger. Burger, Burger, Burger was the most realistic of all the men on the show to the lady writers. He's nice. It's all nice until the, the sound machine and the, and the post-it. And then it's, just, it's all fun and games until then. It's rough. To say you want to go forward and then bail with a post-it, that is... You know, Drew Barrymore was on the show, right? While we were filming, she stopped and she said, I just have to say something. Berger told the truth. He couldn't do it anymore. And he, <laughs> instead of taking her through three more years, I'm sorry, I can't, don't hate me. She said, I think there should be an, an emoji or a meme where people just get to send that to the women or the men they're breaking up with so they don't have to go through three more weeks. So she was a burger apologist. Wow. Justice for burger. That's actually a really interesting way to think about it. Doing Carrie a favor, sort of cutting the cord. Just get out. Get out. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Michael Patrick Kig, this has been an absolute delight and joy. And I really hope that we get to do this again because this... Chris? I really, uh, I want to thank you and Vanity Fair and the other two henchmen that (laughs) played volleyball with our story sense for the last 11 episodes. It was, I'm really happy that you did it. And it was interesting because we all learned from it. I learned from it. You guys learned from it. It's fun. And thank you. Can't wait for season three. We'll do it again. (laughs) Another tribunal for season three. (laughs) I just got to get a prop department to find a phone book somewhere. (laughs) Well, that does it for this episode and this season of Still Watching. Uh, thank you for 
following us through all of uh, the ups and downs of our favorite ladies of Manhattan and one in Brooklyn. Uh, or actually two in Brooklyn. Two. Naya's in Brooklyn. Um, is, is she one of our favorites? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a good point. We haven't yet fully decided what we're going to do for next season of Still Watching. We have some ideas. If you have any ideas, you can always email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear any suggestions. We might do some one-off episodes, so yeah. if there's anything you want us to talk about, please do let us know, or if you have any final thoughts on and just like that, we'd love to read them. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at Rylaws. I am also on an- another app that has been renamed that I won't mention now, but that's where I am with the same name. And I'm also on that app, X, and on Instagram at Christress, C-H-R-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. You can find me at Hillabuster with two R's. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Gabe Quiroga. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. Oh, no, no stairs. Oh, no. No, no, no. I can't handle any more drama. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.